Welcome to the Aerospace Engineering Podcast. My name is Reiner Groh, Research Fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, and on this podcast I have conversations with aerospace pioneers about new technologies at the cutting edge of aerospace design and research. This episode of the Aerospace Engineering Podcast is brought to you by my patrons on Patreon. Patreon is a way for me to receive regular donations from listeners whenever I release a new episode. And with the help of these generous donors, I've been able to pay for much of the expenses, hosting, and travel costs that accrue in the production of this podcast. If you would like to support the podcast as a patron, then head over to patreon.com forward slash aerospace. There are multiple levels of support, but anything from $1 an episode is highly appreciated. Thank you for your support. This episode is also sponsored by StressEpoch.com, which is an online hub for you if you're interested in aerospace stress engineering. StressEpoch.com provides world-class engineering services and online courses on the stress analysis of aircraft structures, as well as a free ebook and blog. No matter if you're a junior or senior structural analyst, StressEpoch.com provides you with the skills and know-how to become a champion in your workplace. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Sam Bosefield is the founder and CEO of Samson Sky, a company that is developing the first truly useful flying car. Sam is actually an architect by training, but has always had a passion for aviation, which led him to work on a supersonic propeller-powered aircraft with Boeing. Out of this experience came the idea and motivation to build a flying car, called the Switchblade. Coming from an architecture background, Sam approached the problem slightly differently. Rather than asking the question of how you could make a car fly, Sam and his team focused on the architectural question of how a vehicle that can both fly and drive should look like. Answering this question led the Samson team to some unique design choices, such as a three-wheel layout and wings that stow and swing out from underneath the vehicle. One of the other challenges in designing a flying car is striking the right compromise between on-road and off-road performance. For example, a car should preferably create downforce, while a plane should obviously create lift. On top of that, you want a vehicle which is both fun to drive and a delight to fly. To achieve this, Samson has made some very clever design choices in terms of the layout and shaping of the switchblade, as well as the positioning of the wings and center of gravity, and the use of lightweight composite materials. In our conversation, Sam and I talk about some of the main design challenges that they needed to overcome, the specific changes that need to be made to the vehicle when switching between the two transportation modes, the way that Sam envisions the switchblade to be used in practice, and much, much more. If after this conversation you're saying to yourself, heck, I need a switchblade, then head over to Samson's webpages to put in your reservation at no upfront cost. But now, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Sam Bosefield. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on today. It's really great. So before we started recording, you you mentioned that your background wasn't originally in aerospace engineering. So my, my first question is, so how did you get into engineering? You know, wh- what did you study and um, how has your career evolved to where you are today? Well, I, I started rather early, I guess. I was probably about four or five. Most kids were out playing in the playground and I was sketching 
oh, rocket ships and tanks and and uh, vehicles and flying cars and all kinds of creations. And they got pretty intricate, as I recall. Uh, and and that's where my head was at for from an early, early age. But as I get closer to going into college, um, you know, I, I could do science and math. And I was actually studying first year at University of Nevada at Reno in engineering, civil engineering. And it just seemed a little too dry for me. I don't know why at that time, it just did. So I changed my major. I went actually into architecture. And architecture is a blending of uh, artist, part artist and part engineer. And that is actually why I think I became as successful so far as I have been uh, doing what I'm doing, creating a flying car, in that um, I'm able to, you know, have the hard science, but also uh, use that artistic portion to look a little bit beyond uh, just the simple creations or the way things have been done and kind of dream a little bit about how they could be or how they should be. And and that was pretty interesting. Yeah, I think uh, sometimes, you know, the best technology is a is a combination of the hard science or the the engineering aspect and the artistic parts. It's when those two things come together that you really can make a, a nice product. Yeah, I think also, I mean, you, the artists dream the future, right? Um, if you looked at movies like uh, that deal with the future, Star Wars, Star Trek, Fifth Element, um, almost Blade Runner, almost any of those, they all see aviation, you know, all the transportation is really up in the air. Uh, currently, everything is done on the ground. And, you know, that's where I looked at when I was started getting into this. I realized, gee, if the future is up in the air and we're down on the ground, what would we do as a bridge? You know, how, how we get from where we are now to where we we're going to end up. And that's kind of where I came up with the idea for the switchblade. It's something that does a little of both. Um, so that is a lot of how I started and got to where I, I am. There was a, an in-between thing, which I'll mention in brief. Uh, and it's because I, I wasn't quite sure of myself, even after college and doing the architecture and the creation, I wasn't quite sure of myself as a, I guess you'd say an inventor. Um, so it took a little bit as I got to the end of a career of, of architecture, 27 years or so, uh, I started doing more and more invention because, you know, anyone who gets good at something or is in it for a while and sees how it, how it really is, you get to see how it could be better. And so I created little things that would make uh, construction better. And some of the inventions also had to do with aviation, which was my, my passion. And, and that's where I got the attention from some Boeing engineers and gained the ability to uh, work with them, which was quite an honor. And we actually got the use of Boeing's computers and data points uh, after hours. I had a, a Stanford professor, Anthony Jameson, uh, who had an iteration program, and we would load up different uh, airfoils and and uh, programs at night, and it would run 70 different airfoils, and in the morning it'd spit out a, a report and say, hey, if you want to go faster, head this direction. If you want less drag, go that direction. If you want more lift, go this direction. And that allowed us to fine-tune a propeller plane, um, which would break the sound barrier in level flight, which not even 
NASA had been able to do. And that was really an amazing thing. We wrote about four scientific AIAA papers, got them published, and uh, the Swedish government used that particular model, if you will, that vehicle, uh, as a way to calibrate their wind tunnel through Mach, oh, I forget, one point something. Um, and that was, you know, again, quite an honor. It was, it's been a pretty wild run there. Wow, that sounds really fascinating. Um, so, so how did you go from, you know, working on supersonics to then funding, uh, to, to then starting your own company? Um, how did that transition occur? Well, I was, um, <clears throat> we were wanting to promote that uh, supersonic technology through racing. And so we designed a, a, a racing plane, if you would, that would, that would uh, enable us to, to show what we could do. And we were going to run it in the Reno Air Races, which happens every August uh, in, the, in the Reno, Nevada area. And that, um, that was great up until the point where the race, uh, the race itself changed the rules to limit the weight. In other words, you're racing alongside of, you know, P-51 Mustangs and Corsairs and large planes. So it's really not safe to put a little plane in that crowd because somebody's going to end up upside down in a bean patch. <laughs> so, you know, they, they wisely said, okay, you have to be at least this big. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like the rides at the, at the fair, you know, you have to be this tall. <laughs> um, and that left us out. So I went, okay, fine, some other way. And at that time, there was a, a gentleman by the name of Steve Fawcett, who was a f world famous adventurer and Went around the world in a single-handedly in a balloon, sailed around the world himself, um, did a lot of things adventurous, and uh, and was a pilot. And so I thought, yeah, I'll approach him, and and I showed him the design. His team looked it over, and they gave it thumbs up. And then he went to Breitling, the watchmaker, and they told him, well, if you you pay half, we'll pay half, Steve. And he came back and said, yeah, we'll we'll do this next. I'll I'll do it after this ground one that I'm working on. And um, I said, great, uh, I'll hang loose and wait for your success in the other. And two months later, unfortunately, he, he disappeared. And that was uh, the big uh, upset of, of uh, the aeronautic crew for a while because he was a big figure and uh, well-liked. And doggone if he just didn't find a, a downdraft or an engine out somewhere in the Sierra Nevadas flying back there. Um, uh, while he was doing this other ground project, and we never really got to do that a supersonic project. Mm -hmm. So then I decided, well, okay, I, I kind of lost my uh, famous adventure with monies, and I didn't spot another one right off the bat, so I went, well, what does aviation really need? And and as far as I could see, aviation just needed to be more useful, something you can do all the time. And uh, that's where I hit on the switchblade and and um, decided to roll forward with that. Okay, great. Yeah, so this is actually the second time that Steve Fawcett has posthumously made a, an appearance on the podcast because I interviewed the engineers at the Paraland project that are building kind of a glider that, um, you know, basically they, they want to glide to the edge of space. And Steve mm -hmm. was uh, involved in that project as well. So. He is definitely um, he's 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 a miss he's being you know he's he's missed as a 
as a funder and as a and as an inspiring aviator. Um, yes. But so you, you've just mentioned the switchblade. So tell me about um, Samsung's mission, your the, the mission of your company. What have you set out to achieve? Well, one thing that we're trying to do, of course, is introduce uh, novel, new uh, ways to move about, ways to, tr to transport yourself and others, and do it with more speed, more ease, more fun. And that's really our niche. We're, we're into the um, something unique, but gives you something that others can't or haven't. And that's um, what, what we're all about. Uh, we want to be, uh, you know, you create a, a vehicle or a product, you also have to create a company, usually, to put it out. So we have to create also a, a platform, a business. And that's been the second creation, if you will. You know, you always create your your widget, your thing that you want to put out, and then you have to create a company to get that widget out there. Absolutely. So so tell me about the the widget, the product that you're that you're currently developing, the switchblade. Well it's the first of a series of vehicles, um, and it's something that does drive and fly. Uh, we went about it a different way. Normally, people say, well, how do you make a flying car? How, how would a flying car work? And we stepped back and said, well, I don't know if that's the right question, because realistically, what we're creating is a, a vehicle that drives and flies. That doesn't necessarily, you wouldn't have to call it a car. So what is the layout and shape and, you know, how, what's the right vehicle that would drive and fly? And in answering that question, we came up with three wheels, not four, uh, lighter and simpler, actually. And that's how most aircraft are. And also, <clears throat> we came up with the idea that you had to be um, high performance in both modes, or you might as well not play. If you can't do that, it's not going to be accepted because it's not useful. It's a novelty. And we also knew, knew that it had to be safe, and that meant that you had to protect your wings, your flying surfaces while on the ground, because if you were to try to use this, then you know you go to a parking lot and someone bangs your door because it's hanging out there where people can get at it, and you would come back and never know that it was damaged. Mm -hmm. And we found later that that was very big for insurance because insurance, actually the insurance companies we talked to would not insure a, a flying car that did not do that. So. I think we made some right choices right off the bat. Great. So, um, one of the, the the things that I, you know, that are puzzling to me is that if you're if you read any or watch any form of science fiction, typically what you'll see is you know the future always involves some some type of a flying car. Um, and I think recently uh, one of the the famous Silicon Valley investors, Peter Thiel, even said that you know we were promised flying cars in the 1960s and 1970s, but instead we got uh, uh, SMS and Twitter. So why do you think there has been relatively little progress in this area of flying cars? Well, it is a bit difficult to do. I'll, I will admit it, having gone through that process. And I think that early on there was a pretty severe handicap that the material sciences were not really up to where they needed to be to make it work. Uh, and I think that's the biggest, the biggest change that I've seen since the earliest of the flying cars, which, you know, you've kept, you've got uh, several that flew in the late 50s. Um, and so it isn't that they, that they couldn't be done. It's just that it wasn't 
I think, um, commercially successful or commercially done correctly. And I think that's where we are stepping in more so as we're starting off with, we're de going to design a product that is, uh, you know, consumer friendly, something that people can see themselves in and, and be wanted to be seen in. It doesn't look sort of, oh, to coin a phrase in the U.S., dorky, kind of unusual or not cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so it's, there's that. And the material sciences have had a lot to do with it because we could not have accomplished what we are accomplishing without um, extensive use of carbon fiber, some titanium, and other things which have been perfected over the last few decades more and more to the point where it's so commonplace now, it, it makes it easy to do. Um, we also, I think, take advantage of uh, the engineering uh, capabilities these days, which is much, much higher capability than there was um, several decades back. That's, that's where I see the difference being. Okay, great. So let's dive into some of those those topics and details. The first one being, you want to design something that isn't, you know, that doesn't look dorky or that customers actually like to dry and fly. And one of the things that um, I immediately think of is you're, you're trying to create this hybrid between something that drives and something that flies. Um, and you don't want you kind of want it to feel like a car when it's driving but then obviously it's supposed to feel like an aircraft as well so how is it that you can achieve this compromise what are you know what are some of the design choices that you need to make to make sure that the vehicle is both fun to fly and also fun to drive well for us i can speak to that anyways the you start with us we started with the ground portion and the flying portion as a so you have to go back and forth and back and forth to see what layout, you know, initial layout will give you the characteristics that you can move forward with. There's a lot of things that you work out along the way. But if you if you work a little bit up front with a lot of different variations to see which might be more promising, then your path will be a lot easier to, to accomplish. And and that's what we did originally. We We knew that we needed to do a um, something that drove and so it would have to have wheels and be capable on the ground which means you know you have to um, be able to go through turns and corner and and yet fly and so that means it had to be light so we chose the three wheels as the most, most likely path forward with that and then how do you put up the wings so that you can actually have the right CG for both because a CG for a three-wheel vehicle single wheel in front means that the CG has to be low into the rear. Otherwise, you get into the overturning problems of a, of a, a Reliant Robin or others that, that have, you know, had trouble. The early U.S. Uh, three-wheelers were notorious for this. Oh, my gosh, you go off-road with that and you're, you're over on your side in a heartbeat. So not the safest type uh, of vehicle to do if you don't do it correctly. But, you know, we worked out uh, a wing swing and a way to put the wings near the backside and put the engine behind you so we could locate the CG aft. And that aft CG worked out great for the ground vehicle. And that was a, one of those big things where it kind of had to work out that way. And, and it did work out that way. And it was a success point for us. 
Okay, so I guess so you mentioned the center of gravity being being one challenge. And I guess the other thing is then, you know, when, if you develop, say, a race car, you want to maximize downforce to kind of mm. stick the car to the to the tarmac or to the to the driving surface. But then when you're flying, it's the exact opposite. You want lift. So I guess, of course, at some point you're going to you have the the benefit of being able to add wings to your uh, to your uh, to your car to make it into a flying car, but what are some of the other ways where you you strike that right compromise between having downforce in the in the driving um, setting and then having lift when you're when you want to fly? And that was another. It was actually almost an accident, to be really honest with you. We designed the vehicle knowing that we were going to be producing. Um, some lift from the body. We didn't know exactly how much, and that was one thing that was harder to figure out outside the wind tunnel. Um, these days, I think it'd be more easy, but uh, when we started 10 years ago, that was not in the wheelhouse of the engineers. So <clears throat> we we knew that there was two forces on the ground that were of concern. One was uh, up force or down force as, you, as you're driving forward. And then also there's a side gust. This is going to be a light vehicle. And to have, to be able to track, like a Volkswagen Bug, if you've ever driven one on the on the road and passed a semi, some large truck, it moves you. I mean, you mm-hmm. get, you're not, you're not passing that thing without going sideways. So to handle that, we rounded the bottom surface of the vehicle. Um, so the middle was the lowest and the sides were higher to crenute, create a Bernoulli suction down low as the air was pushed past the vehicle uh, sideways in that situation. And the idea being that would create a more downforce when you need it. And we actually proved this not in the wind tunnel, but in the real world. We created a, a fifth scale model and had it on display at Sun and Fun in Lakeland, Florida one year. I think it was 2008 or nine. I forget which year. But it was on a table. We had a had a tent, then we had a table outside with our brochures and and this model on, and we were presenting the idea. And a, a huge gust came through. It actually was strong enough to start ripping the tents apart. Oh. Uh, and I ran outside. I was in the tent for a minute. Ran outside, thinking, "Oh my gosh, my model is, you know, down the street half a block by then." And uh, I was very surprised to find the only thing left on the table was the model. It just happened to catch the wind from the side, and that was enough to suck it down onto the table and keep it there. Everything else was cleaned off the table and gone. Mm-hmm. So that was that was one aspect of it. The other is, of course, your straight frontal. And what we decided was just go for the minimal possible uplift potential at zero angle of attack, where you're dead level against the ground. And... And when we set our wings and we fly, we actually take off from that. We don't pitch up like a an aircraft is usually a, you know, five degrees or three degrees upwards tilt of the wings and the body for takeoff. And we opted out of that and are flat to the ground. So we actually have to put a notch of flaps in to take off. And we take off like a B-52. You accelerate down the runway at the point where you can take off, it just takes off and flies itself off the runway. And then you pitch up to whatever angle of departure you want and and fly off from the airport that way. 
Uh, but that gives us near zero uplift from the body while on the ground. Not tremendous downdraft, um, but there is no uplift, which is what we we're aiming for. And that's proven out in the wind tunnel. We found uh, that the body is indeed a lifting body, similar to the space shuttle, and produces a significant portion of lift. I at first was thinking, oh my gosh, um, you know, this is great. This is going to decrease our, our, um, uh, the lift that the wings have to produce and gee you know we pitched up to 30 degrees and it it doesn't stall wow so i thought man i've got a non-stalling vehicle this is awesome and my lead engineer aero engineer uh willem Anamad at dark Corp, threw cold water on me right away and said no sam <laughs> what that means is the wings are gonna are gonna stall and your center of lift is gonna move forward because the body not stalling its center lift is forward of the combined center lift wings and body. And that means you need more tail. So we're going to be redesigning this tail now. <laughs> uh, so that was our first trip to the wind tunnel. Okay, so you've just mentioned the, the tail, how you're redesigning the tail. And I'm just wondering about how you actually go about adding and subtracting the lifting surfaces when, as you switch from the driving mode into the into the flying mode. Um, so how, how does the stowage and extension mechanism, how will that work? We wanted to be able to take everything with you when you go, so you're not stopped. I mean, things in the past, you had to decouple the wings and sometimes the tail from the vehicle. Um, and we realized that that's inconvenient because if you really want to use a flying car cross country say and you're flying cross country and you see a storm that you have to fly through and you realize I don't really want to fly through that storm there's some embedded cells in there that don't look convenient <laughs> or safe so you know the idea is you can drop down swing your wings closed underneath the belly or suck the tail up in the back like we do and drive through and if you don't have that capability you're stuck until the storm passes just like any other aircraft so we designed from the outset uh, different ways that you could collapse or stow the wings and tail inside the body at first um, we looked at a collapsing like a nesting uh, telescoping arrangement and I had my first uh, aeronautic patent on that and and that was fine actually could work but we didn't have a way at that time to do the flight control surfaces on a telescoping wing now I can but I, I didn't have a way at that time and so we went to a swinging wing uh, and it had different variations finally came up with the one which hinged at the rear and swung forward and that allowed the, the wings to be aft and give uh, a vehicle that could take an aft CG better. And, and that's what we do. We have clamshell doors at the sides, bottom of the bottom sides of the vehicle, and a belly underneath. Clamshell doors open up, the wing swings forward underneath the vehicle, and the clamshell doors close up, sealing it all inside so they're protected while on the ground, which is key. You don't want rocks or twigs or anything getting in there and maybe jamming with the surfaces or damage if you happen to hit something. Uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't want to have the wing be the first thing that gets hit. No. So that's that. And the tail um, the tail now has a bit of motion. You we have a YouTube channel, uh, the Samson Samson Motors or Samson Sky YouTube channel. You can look for 
for the uh, video which covers this, but it's actually a really cool-looking um, system. It's more emotion that we wanted. I think, engineering-wise, simplicity is better. The simpler, the better. And you know you've got it nailed when it's as simple as possible. Um, and this tail was not simple. But because we had to redesign um, from the wind tunnel studies, which showed the reason we needed um, more tail was we needed uh, the we need to handle that you know the lifting body aspect in the stall, and we also realized that our tail was located in dirty air in the body wake, and it was less efficient than it than it should be or could be. So we redesigned it to be up in clean air up top as a T tail. And then uh, realized that we needed more vertical, so we added a second T. So it's now a V tail, VT tail, has mm. a V and then T at the top. And that somehow had to, to disappear on the road. Um, so I worked and worked and worked with that until we got something that was the simplest we could that would give us what we needed. And that tail, the horizontals uh, fold down alongside the verticals. So they get nice and nested and tight there and then that whole section rotates at the tail boom uh, down so that it's it can be sucked forward into the back of the vehicle in the ducted fan section right up close to the propeller but in front of the bumpers so you're protected in the rear from the bumpers and below with the belly pan and this the keel that runs underneath the vehicle Oh, wow. It sounds like a lot of mechanisms. Yeah. There is. <laughs> Great. Well, I'll definitely put in put the links to um, the YouTube channel um, to go alongside uh, the episode so listeners um, can, can check out those videos. Um, but are there any other changes that need to be made while switching from road to air? So, for example, does the dashboard change somehow? Because I'm, I'm sure that some of the instrumentation um, uh, needs to be different. Yes, it does. Um, and there's two things which uh, happen that I didn't mention, one of which is that the the beams for the main wings fold up uh, inside the vehicle as well. They're folding beams. That was the second and third patents uh, granted for the switchblade was the beam mechanism. And it's actually quite unique, and I think it's an elegant design. When it's swung out and locked in place, it's like you have I-beams for um, the body portion of your spar or the main beam for the wings. Mm -hmm. And yet they have hinge points that you unpin and those things uh, then can can rotate about the pins, if you will, and they fold up uh, and nest in tight against the root side of the, the wing and just kind of disappear inside there. And it's quite a unique little setup, very strong. We just passed both uh, positive G and negative G. Um, what we have is part 23, FAA part 23 certification guidelines and test procedures. And uh, we're very, very excited to do that because that's a big test. Even Boeing sweats, sweats that one. Uh, Airbus, I'm sure, does the same. It's like a big, big, big test is that main, main wing uh, positive G test. But the dashboard automatically shifts when you, you know, when you push the button to automate the whole system, changing from flight mode to ground mode. 
um, you know, all of the mechanical systems start shifting around. The wings swing closed. Uh, the tail uh, retracts and stows inside the vehicle. And then the dashboard switches out from ground instruments. We have a digital dash, which we call the eyes forward display, that's right in front of each of the pilots, left and right. And we designed the system uh, symmetrical uh, so that we could service easily both right and left drive countries because we're international. Oh, wow. Very really clever. And then all you have to do is either, you know, put your steering wheel on the right side or the left side. The controls in the dash are there for either or both in case people want to use the switchblade for training or have dual controls for flying. You can you can do that. But um, it's set up to uh, handle either way. And the controls uh, automatically shift as well. Your your right gas pedal becomes your right rudder pedal. We have a, a drive-by-wire engine, so it's throttle-by-wire engine. So it's all electronics in the, uh, in the controls, so that's easy to switch. That mm -hmm. goes to your right rudder. Left pedal is your left rudder, and a mechanical interlink locks as you do that switch so that you now have a set of uh, rudder pedals instead of gas pedal. The middle pedal is you brake always on the ground and in the air. And we don't need differential braking, so we don't have toe brakes. It's just the center brake because you have a reverse gear and you have steering. And so if you're in a tight situation, you just do your two or three-point turns to accommodate what normally you do with uh, toe brakes and variable braking. Um, and the, the that allows us in the digital dash to change so that you can either have miles per hour or kilometers per hour, and um, that is something that, you know, is, again, useful for around the world. People have different units, unfortunately, and you have to take that into account. But we use the eyes forward display uh, mainly for safety because if you have a center console with your flight instruments and whatnot on it, we have a flat screen, 10-inch flat screen as our main display for the instruments there uh, if you're coming in for a landing and when you're taking off you really want gauges big and bold right in front of you you want those those things to really be um, visible and you want to track certain things more than than others and so we grab from the electronic display we grab the um, angle of attack we want the uh, vertical descent rates your airspeed uh, RPM, those key metrics, your altitude, um, those things which you really want to have right in front of you as you approach. And that's what we throw up on the eyes forward display so that you can have it in two places. If your EFIS does go dark, your instruments do fail you, but they're still working inside, uh, they'll still broadcast to your, your forward display and you'll be able to fly. And uh, And that's kind of what we're what we're dealing with as far as the dash goes. Wow, it sounds very much uh, like a morphing aircraft that is, yeah, almost to entirely change uh, its its mode and the in the way it looks uh, with the on you know with the push of a button. Um, so tell me a little bit more about how customers will actually will actually be using the switchblade. So um, how does kind of the operational cycle look like, and then how far can you can you fly the switchblade? Sure, well, I'll, I'll go the simplest one first, which is flight distance, about 450 miles. Mm -hmm. And looking for my conversion because I 
going off the head. I'm not sure. It's around, yeah, it's around 650 kilometers. No, maybe a bit more, 700 kilometers, yeah. Yeah. So so that's the distance one could go on a, on a tank of fuel, petrol. And um, we have, it basically in flight and in driving, it's, it's just like anything, any other vehicle that you might um, be driving or flying. It flies pretty much like any other aircraft. It drives pretty much like a car, although it has one single wheel up front. So if you're in snow country, that's the one detractor. If you want to know the bad point about the vehicle, there's only one front wheel. If you hit a patch of ice or snow in a car, you've got the chance that one of the two tires is on pavement, which has some grip, mm -hmm. and you might pull through. If you hit uh, snow or ice with the single wheel, you've got less chance of that occurring of course you're it's either on or it's off so we mitigate that by having uh, tires available which are called garnet tread tires and they have actually bits of garnet in the tire itself you can drive with them year-round but they work better than chains or studs in snow and would give you the grip you need uh, going into cold country um, but ordinarily you drive uh, the switchblade from your garage, say, to an airport. Um, have fun along the way because it's a heck of a uh, sports car in feel. It's really fun to drive. Um, it's got the power to weight of a Corvette. Oh, wow. It really accelerates. And it's amazingly nimble in the corners. And we've tested this because we're concerned, like most people are, with a front single wheel. How's it going to handle the corners? So we tested it on road and track standard slalom course where you put uh, cones 100 feet apart, eight cones 100 feet apart, and run through the cones, uh, you know, rolling start through the cones, fast as you can down one way, fast as you can the other way. You add the time together and divide by two, and that's your time. Uh, and then we compared to road and track's historical database, and we beat everything in our wheelbase, the distance between the front and rear wheels. Uh, in their historical database, two, uh, four wheels or not. And what's more amazing is they had four wheels, of course, which you'd expect better cornering from, and they tested at minimum weight. We tested at max gross weight because we're trying to overturn it. We're trying to see how, you know, where are the safety points. And they used pro drivers, and we used little old me. I'm, I may be good, but I'm not a pro driver. So that was quite quite the test actually so so in essence it drives pretty much like any sports car would um great stopping power in flight it takes off a bit different uh, differently uh like a b52 like i mentioned you accelerate down the runway until it gets light on its feet and comes off uh the uh airport and then you just pitch up and climb and and retract the one flap uh, that you got out and that gives you your your departure in the air, it flies like any other aircraft. Um, it doesn't have a wet wing, so it has smaller ailerons, and uh, but a fairly decent roll rate, as far as we can see in uh, flight testing in a simulator, uh, X-Plane. We built it in X-Plane and flew it there for checking uh, uh, the design early on. And then landing now is a bit different also, and this relates to driving and our choices for controls because we knew that the nose is going to go over right away as soon as you touch down 
The rear wheels, you look at the design and you'll see that they're further aft than a normal aircraft. In our case, the, the folding up place, the place you can stow your wings, is between the front and rear wheels. So we pushed the rear wheels as far aft as we could, the nose the wheel as far forward. That gives you bigger wings and more uh, capability for lift. And so that pushed normal rotation on your rear wheels. You know, the rear wheels are close to the center of your wings, and so it's very easy to rotate upwards and take off pitched up like that from the airport. But you, you won't be doing that with the switchblade. When it lands, those rear wheels touch, and you're instantly nose over and driving. And, um, and that actually turned out to be a good thing because in the simulator, at least, we find that we can land about 10 or 15 knots above stall speed and hit the brakes and be stopped, you know, midfield on a small field. Um, but you're never near the stall. You're never near that point where the airplane is not able to fly anymore. And we think it's going to be a very safe aircraft because of that. You won't have so many uh, turns going into final on, a, on an approach and have people spin in because they were just a little bit too slow. So for us, we feel that's a plus point. Oh, wow, great. So um, will I, if, when, I when, when, when customers will be able to fly this aircraft, will they, is there any specific license that they need or is it just a matter of having a car license, a normal driving license, and then having your, your typical aircraft license? Oh, I wish there was only one answer to that question. All right. <laughs> <laughs> there are an amazing amount of different rules and regulations with all the different countries in, in the United States, all the different states even within a country. <clears throat> and in Canada, the same way, their provinces have different rules. Um, this is a kit vehicle. Um, we knew going into this that we needed and wanted, the for the business case, the biggest box to play in. It's it's hard enough engineering-wise to make this work, and we needed a big box to play in, and you're going to have two sets of rules. Uh, you've got ground rules and air rules. You know, you've got the FAA to deal with and the um, YASA and others that, um, that you've got to take into account uh, and use those guidelines, even if you're an experimental aircraft and you don't need to follow those rules. That is how you... In my mind, that's how we sleep at night. We know that we've we've done our job in engineering. We've produced something that we know is a safe aircraft to fly. So we follow those rules. And assembly on the ground, we don't have to do all the DOT, Department of Transportation regulations. Um, you've got uh, uh, other agencies that deal with in the in the UK and in Europe, but they. Uh, but we have to satisfy them in our minds in some cases so that we that we know we have a, a decent vehicle that people will be safe driving. So um, that that basically is how we started and approached it. And we had to look at all the different rules and see which ones we could meet easily and still be able to fly on the ground. You know, you meet the ground ones that you can still fly with and some of the air ones that you can still drive with. And in the case where something like airbags airbags are built ground airbags are built really to handle forward accidents or rearward accidents they're they're horizontal in nature or from the side air airbags are intended to handle 
a more vertical aspect of an accident because that's a that's where you're coming in. You're coming in as a hard landing, and it's more vertical typically. And so they're not really compatible. And so that's why we didn't include airbags, but we do include side and rear and front intrusion protection, crumple zones, if you will, rollover protection, um, a lot of safety features that are common or are useful in both. And um, and we just didn't, you know, we don't do a five mile per hour bumper like you do in cars because, you know, three wheel vehicles are not classed the same as a car, not required to. But we still have a bumper that would protect a person. And so those are those are the things that we went after when we went after the designs and rules and regs. You just have to spot them in advance and know how you can get an approach through them to be able to market and have a vehicle in the end that will will meet and be able to be sold. Yeah, absolutely. It does sound like a very challenging um, engineering exercise because not only do you have to combine the the kind of operational aspects that we talked about before in, in terms of getting the engineering right and the, the compromise between drying, driving and flying, but then, of course, you also have the, the safety and the regulation um, that are, you know, as you've just uh, described, are sometimes different uh, between the two um, between the two um, operational environments of flying and driving. So, yeah, it does really sound like a, a very difficult uh, engineering uh, problem that you're that you're trying to solve. So w what is the current status of the project um, and how will it develop uh, in the near future? Well, we've uh, gone through a ground prototype which um, has uh, exceeded our expectations. We had to tweak it a bit to get there. It wasn't like first out of the gate, but you know, we've gone over uh, 200 kph on the ground and it handles great. Um, uh, done our cornering testing, like I mentioned, on the road and track slalom course. And it really worked things out there because it's cheap to do it in metal and steel tubing and whatnot. Uh, when you start to get into the carbon fiber, you need molds and the material itself is very expensive. So you don't really want to be redoing things there. So we went past that, did their wind tunnel testing and really froze the uh, OML, the outer mold line at that point and then started working on the carbon fiber prototype, the actual flying prototype. And that's what we're about 95% through now. We're on the last stages of that, having passed all of our tests that we needed, um, the front and rear suspension drop tests and other tests that have been done to validate it along the way. And uh, we're now doing final assemblies on, uh, let's see, this weekend is uh, aileron cockpit, uh, you know, the pilot push rods from the control column out to the wings. Um, Monday is going to be the elevator uh, controls out to the back and the tail and uh, such like that. The engine will be the week after that. We have like about 13 major sections to do. And we have 10 of them scheduled uh, in this month of March. And so that leaves a few in April. And then we'll be going through it again. Every time you think you're done, you just go through it again, make sure, and don't make any mistakes because this, you know, walking in, you've got one chance at a good successful test flight. You want it to be successful. So that means taking your time and, and making uh, everybody look at it, including the test pilots. We have a, amazing test pilots. Um, 
one of which is uh, he was a uh, Air Force, U.S. Air Force test pilot. Then he became United Airlines chief test pilot. And now he's been hired by the FAA and is in their test flight procedures. Um, and uh, we had to get a special letter actually to keep him as a test pilot. But he's in certified aircraft and we're in experimental. So that that actually worked out. There's no conflict. Oh, that sounds great. So that, that basically means you'll be flying the or driving the car and flying the aircraft very soon. That's that's really fascinating. Um, so, um, Sam, tell me, how can listeners stay up to date with um, all of Samson's developments? So you've just said that you you're very close to actually driving and, and flying. Um, so how can listeners stay up to date with your uh, the, the developments coming up in the next couple of weeks? Well, I think the easiest way, perhaps the best way is to sign up for the newsletter because that that'll get you the milestones and of course we'll announce that uh, first when we fly um, to to our newsletter crowd um, and that can be signed up on our website or or you can just check the website but it's not as updated as much as the uh, the newsletter or Facebook so if you go to the website which is uh, uh, samsonsky.com s-a-m-s-o-n-s-k-y.com uh, you can have the little links to uh, Facebook, YouTube, uh, Twitter um, and sign up for the newsletter if you wish uh, you can get on the reservation line if this is something and you go oh I always wanted a, a flying car and something that you know might be able to uh, cruise uh, up to 300 kph or or um, or 257 kph, sorry, max speed is about 305. And, you know, I, I want something that can get from here to there and uh, go 720 some odd kilometers. That's um, that's something that we would provide. And, and uh, you know, you can get a, at least a place in line. We have, we're the, I think, the world's most popular flying car right now. We have reservation precision 930 some odd. Uh, somewhere in that range. Oh wow, full books. Yeah. So you know, we've been working for the last two years trying to figure out how to get um, the capability to do carbon fiber fast enough to keep up with demand. And oh, wow. that's maybe a, I don't know how much time you have, but that's another five minutes just describing what we've done right there. Sure. Well, just to finish, tell me a little bit about your experiences with carbon fiber. Um. We realized early in the program when we started having so many signups that we had something that we would need to have a better way to, to build. We had to have the carbon fiber because of the weight savings. Um, just that's what you have to bite off when you get into something that has to have bumpers and extra safety features for, for the ground as well as air. So we started looking into it and, um, you know, two things have been pulled out of that long search and a lot of testing on our own, um, analyzing uh, strengths and quality materials, joining capabilities. And what we're seeing is probably, I'm seeing now the same thing with Airbus and Boeing. They're, they're finding that the thermoplastics is really the end game that uh, seems the best and the most likely. And so we've centered down on ways that we can have access to some thermoplastics that would be aircraft greater quality um, and a process that would give us parts. Right now we use Tori prepreg, um, 12K. Uh, it's pretty much standard of what most small 
groups will use. And it's great, except for a large part may run, oh gosh, six to nine hours to make. And that means a lot of hands on it, a lot of labor, a lot of cost, and a lot of time in the shop. That all adds up. And our studies show if you take the time out of it, you really drop the cost of carbon. It's not so much the cost of the material, it's the labor involved. So we've got our time down to less than 15 minutes um, with both uh, a 250 snap cure epoxy and with um, the end game for us, which is the PPS uh, thermoplastic in a two-part clamshell mold. And you just have to really dial it in and the, the PPS is not the same does not behave out of the mold the same, does not mold the same as an epoxy. So even though you might be using metal molds for both, don't figure that though this PPS will mold the same. Uh, but, you know, that learning curve is something to get through and, and work up. And that's um, the direction that we've headed. And we found strength-wise we're just as good, uh, plus or minus just a tiny bit from the epoxy prepreg we've been using. Yeah, I think the as you say, the thermoplastics are definitely the end game. Even as you know, when when you consider things like um, recycling, where anything that's made from an epoxy, the only option you really have is to to burn the epoxy out and then try to reuse the fibers. Well, of course, with a thermoplastic, you can just melt melt everything down again, and then you've got the resin and the fibers um, to use as a you know to to recycle them. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess I mean I think also in the because you're you're building a flying car, and you know some companies like BMW, they they are trying to use more and more carbon fiber, and they are also finding it you know very very difficult to get those cycle times down to be able to manufacture rapidly, um, and that you know the co the costs add up um, in the long run if you've got long labor times. That's what we found too, and and we do like to be a green company, not so much from the. I want to have the label of a green company. It's just a smart thing to do. I mean, it, it, you don't have to be terribly intelligent in my mind to be able to spot if you continually plute up uh, where you live, eventually it's it's not going to be livable. So regardless of anything else, it just makes sense to, to keep things as clean as you can, recycle as much as possible. And then also, um, you know, if you get into some of the epoxies that are used in the prepregs and others, it's not safe to breathe. I mean, some of the chemicals that you use in today to produce, say, simple fiberglass bathtubs or things of that nature, it's actually not really healthy to be around. Mm -hmm. And you, your staff may be okay. You may be able to put them in masks and whatnot while they're working, but your exhaust goes outside and it goes down to the neighborhood next to you, and those guys are breathing it. And that's not good for them either. So... We want to do the PPS and others that are that sense just just to be friendly neighbors and to be good to the people that work around where we are. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, Sam, you know, uh, thank you very much for coming on the podcast and, and taking the time out of your, your busy, busy manufacturing schedule. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and I think I and all of our listeners have learned a lot about, um, about flying cars and what you're doing um, with the Switchblade. So thanks for coming on the podcast. And thank you very much, too. I enjoyed it very much. If you would like to learn more about Samson Sky and the Switchblade, then head over to aerospaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find show notes about everything we discussed in today's episode. 
And if you enjoy the Aerospace Engineering Podcast, then there are a number of ways you can support it. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're tuning in. You can share it on social media with your friends and family, or you can support the podcast directly on Patreon. And with that, thank you very much for listening and talk to you next time.